Hey everyone, Raghav here, and before we get into this brand new episode, we do have a very urgent announcement to make, and that is for those of you who follow us on social media, you know that we primarily use Instagram for all of our content and are very active over there. Well, unfortunately, we've had to get a new Instagram account because, well, we got locked out of our previous one for an unknown reason, and Instagram has no support, so we can't get it back. So now we're at a new account, and that is at PreventPod instead of at PreventPodcast. The new account is P-R-E. V-E-N-T-P-O-D. For the details on what happened, make sure to go to that new account and uh, check out the story highlights because that's where we explain kind of the situation. And on that account, just as a heads up, we will be posting our new content, which you guys are looking forward to hopefully, but we will also be posting um, our older content from season one just to catch up to where our previous page was. We want to thank you guys for the continued support and hope to grow our page back to where it was and beyond and continue spreading the message of preventive medicine. And now with that announcement out of the way, let's get back to this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. The Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Welcome back to the Preventive Medicine Podcast, and we hope that you're having a fantastic day so far. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky about, well, a lot of things, ranging from improving the healthcare system, lipidology, figuring out how to determine who to listen to, and even memes. Yes, memes. Dr. Nadolsky is a family medicine physician who took a very different route out of med school than almost all physicians and is currently the chief physician for Renaissance Periodization. This is a very entertaining and informative episode, so let's get right in into it. All right. So we have with us today, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? We know, obviously, you are a family medicine physician specializing in obesity and lipidology. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into medicine um, and kind of where your interests lie? Yeah. My quick, uh, quick story is that dad is a biology, chemistry teacher, wrestling coach uh, in, in high school, brother who's four years older than I am, really into science for athletics. And so he was a really good athlete. I became a good athlete using science and hard work, obviously, but, um, both wrestled in college. I actually went to college to play football and wrestle ended up at the end, just wrestling. It was hard to handle both sports, but, uh, did really well in athletics. I uh, went to UNC Chapel Hill, did well as their heavyweight wrestler, but really loved the science of nutrition and exercise to get good at sports. Wanted to bring it to medical school and into medicine to basically prevent slash cure or put into remission chronic disease. That's really it. So um, quickly I discovered that it's a lot harder, easier said than done because the, we have a kind of a broken system. And whatever, I kind of made my own niche. Uh, my brother ended up doing endocrinology. I thought about either cardiology or endocrinology, and you have to go through internal medicine first. And then you know, when I was hanging out in family medicine, I thought that you kind of had these younger patients. It was kind of like, a, I keep thinking about it now. I'm like, it was probably the wrong choice. I should have just done internal medicine. But my idea was that I'd get people that were younger and kind of prevent them from having to see, you know, a cardiologist 
having them to put stents in. But now there's kind of new preventive cardiology. And anyway, that's a whole nother topic we could talk about. But so now my whole thing is using kind of different systems in medicine. I'm all online. I use the cloud for treating patients and kind of this group coaching approach with uh, online registered dietitians and using uh, email for communication and kind of spreading that net far and wide. And then I don't take insurance. I'm kind of a low cash-based monthly fee. So I I think using technology and using science, we can improve population and individual health. Uh, And I think we have an archaic an archaic system for, uh, for medicine currently. So I, I'm kind of a, I call myself a cardiometabolic specialist. That's kind of, it's a fake, um, it, it, they're trying to develop that especially, but since I did family and then did obesity and lipids and kind of mostly lifestyle, that's uh, pretty much what I do. I try to get everybody optimized to, to reduce the risk of diabetes and heart disease. That's pretty much it. Cool. Nice. Um, yeah, that's pretty unique. Um, most people, when they go into medicine, they're just like, we're going to go into cardiology, yeah. dermatology, yeah. we're going to anesthesiology and whatnot. So it's very unique, um, path that you created for yourself in a sense. But at the end of the day, we know that your real specialty is actually memeology. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> most people care. They're like, don't give me the science, give me the memes. We need yeah. the memes. <laughs> If you guys listen to this podcast, if you go on uh, Dr. Ndolsi's Instagram, I think one of the main thing is like chief memologist yeah, or yeah, uh, something similar to that. Yeah, I'm a board certified memologist. That's been another niche of mine, making people laugh yeah. and teaching them. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So how did you get started in like the social media space and grow your following to be so large and kind of use that platform to communicate what you know? Yeah. I was kind of one of the early adopters of Facebook at, back at Chapel Hill in 2004. I can't believe it. That's like right when Facebook was coming out. And, you know, we just, we, you know, to be honest, we were trying to, you know, use it to, you know, maybe find a girlfriend of some sort. <laughs> and, um, eventually saw that it could be used for like business purposes. So in medical school, a little bit, uh, you know, I, I used it, but then residency is when you start treating patients like, you know, in medical school, you guys are seeing patients, but like, they're not your patients yet. Eventually, right. You guys are going to be interns next year. You're going to have your own set of patients. Um, and so anesthesia, you're probably, what are you doing? What's your, what are you doing transition year? Are you doing an intern? So about like right now, about 60% of the programs that are out there have switched to categorical. So basically they have a built-in transition year, right. um, but I'll probably still be applying to programs that have just regular, like I'll have to apply to a different place for like either like a surgery or an internal medicine year and then enter their program as like a CA one or an advanced one. Got it. So you may have to do, uh, you may have your own set of patients in a clinic at some point. It may be potentially, but that's where you really like, that's where you really go. Oh, it's not all this kind of book knowledge that you have. You actually have to somehow apply it to people. And I was just talking to my brother who's, he's an endocrinologist. We were just laughing about like the stuff that I used to think as a medical, you think, you know, what the heck is, going on and you do theoretically, but then when you actually have the patient in front of you, they don't fit the exam questions. It's, it's weird. not a world. It's not yeah, a world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I still love, I actually love board questions. I could still do them right now just because it's so fun. And the knowledge is good if you have a thirst for kind of knowledge and understanding. But I remember going as a medical student presenting to the attending and they were just kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I know, I know like the answer in a test, but like it's, it's, it's weird. So you'll, it's you'll night day, yeah. 
you guys will figure it out quickly. But uh, what happened is in, as an intern, I had this theoretical knowledge and I'm like, oh, we got to do this proper diet and exercise. And what happened is that you start recognizing patterns very quickly. They all have the same thing that like that doesn't work. Practicality, this works. And so what I did is I just shared tips on Facebook. That was Instagram wasn't big back then. It was 2011 is when I was an intern. And um, I would just share a tip. Uh, I made my own Dr. Spencer page. I was an intern, but people thought of me as like some renowned doctor after a while. I still, <laughs> still would get in debates and like people were like, I can't believe you're, you're debating with world renowned Dr. Spencer and adults. And I'm like, I'm just an intern, but like, can be that way or whatever. Uh, but that's how, and so I just, social media can really make people who, unfortunately it's a double-edged sword because you got people yeah. who wouldn't be experts. And, you know, I was just a lowly intern, but people thought he's a world-renowned uh, expert doctor, which is hilarious, especially looking back at the time. But, uh, yeah, so I just yeah. – that's it. Yeah. I definitely agree like that. I guess working, you know, you're, the knowledge that you acquire in the first two or three or four years of medical school and then trying to apply that to, you know, behavioral change with people, yeah. like real people is always going to be so much more difficult when you talk about, you know, everyone has their own psychosocial limitations or obstacles, financial limitations, obstacles, yeah. things like that. And it's like, you know, in a perfect world, everyone has money, time and energy and then you get in real, you know, the real world. And most doctors don't have money, time, or energy when they first get no. started. So, um, and, and insurance tells you what medicines you can prescribe and not prescribe. You don't have enough time to even give a pay. It was is frustrating. So that's how I kind of developed my own thing. Uh, and then, then from Facebook, my Facebook still does very well. But you know, you switched the platform to Instagram a few years ago. I was doing infographics because it's very in your face. You either got to be very pretty, ripped, you know, uh, or something like that if you want to excel, or you have to make it, make what I do memes or meme pages or infographics. So I started making infographics. But if you knew me on a personal level, you'd realize that I'm not dry and sterile like an infographic. I I pretty much joke about everything unless it's very serious, of course. But like. I try to have a, a more humorous um, rapport with my patients. And so like when in, in with other doctors, I make jokes about things and kind of satire and, and whatever. So then I started making memes and that's where I really excelled and people just laugh. So you make, and that's how I grow. I, you know, I, I only had a few years ago, I had a, a thousand followers on Instagram and now I have like 220 or something thousand followers and not as much as some of those other uh, prettier i'd say doctors or whatever but uh i feel like i make them laugh more than anybody else so whatever we all have our own things yeah i mean definitely i think you've you've found a great way to to i guess loop people in or bring people in with kind of things that are are with some levity things that are funny but then there's actually a lesson being learned with each one too where you know there's a you know a, a good stem or a good you know thing to talk about and then they're laughing at the joke but then they read it and then they still yeah. learn yeah. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the things we're also going to talk about later on in this episode, as we were like scripting this out. Um, we think that physicians are not necessarily the best at communication. Yeah. And that's actually in our episode in uh, season one, which we talked about with Dr. White, that physicians don't know how to communicate for yeah. the most part. We have all this theoretical knowledge. We like communicate with our patients on a daily basis, but we think we're communicating. The patients are like, 
What did he just say? So I think the memes that you have are like a fantastic way to like break that barrier and actually help people understand it. Yeah. You know, the other interesting thing is if if you have to follow me for enough, because you may catch me on a day where I'm making like, it's almost like inflammatory to where it's like, that's poor bedside manner. (laughs) I, if you, if you watch the cycle, I'll, I'll be poor bedside manner, but like in your face, funny, like really digging at you. And then I'll, and it'll be like a tweet that's more empathetic and show the other side of it. So it's the, it's like the Kermit, the frog meme where he's like normal. And then he, yeah, the uh, evil face, the evil, yep. the evil hood or whatever. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's pretty much what I do. And it, when someone catches me on a bad, I, I mean, like I'll go and my, um, whatever those rated doc sites are. Luckily when you they're far down, but some people that follow me on social media, if they catch me on a bad day, they'll go give me a one star and be like, this doctor is rude. And I'm like, you didn't even see me as a patient. I would never speak like that to an actual patient. It's more of like the, when people say this, this, uh, this highly personal thing is a relatable thing is attacking me, like personally attacking. That's, that's kind of what I tried a relatable topic. I kind of make a poke fun and then I teach you, here's the real deal. So that's pretty much the gist of it. It's nothing. So how do you navigate the negative space? So obviously with social media, like you kind of hinted at it earlier, you know, there are a lot of people on there with a lot of followers who maybe shouldn't have a lot of followers and they have a lot of strong opinions. And then the comment section gets into group versus group. How do you kind of stay positive during that sort of thing? Yeah, sometimes I don't. (laughs) So like, I'm not the best at it. Like, there, so Lane, like, for example, Lane Norton, uh, very negative, very abrasive, but that's a shtick, right? There's people that are just really don't like that. Um, I, I personally like a mix of being very positive and then sometimes being a jerk. That's my thing. There's some people that say you should always be positive, but that's not my personality. I, I cannot fake. I can't be fake. I hate fake, in fact. And I know there are actually people on, on that I know that some of these influencers, so I know them in person and they're real personalities, nothing like they show on, on Instagram or social media. And that's fine. Like it's a business thing. I get it. But like, I hate, I hate that actually. In fact, that I tell them to like, like, that's not you. You're just being a fake idiot. And they're like, oh, whatever. I got lots of following. I'm like, okay. Well. <laughs> so person, well, what's the point then? Yeah, I know. I, I mean, yeah, if it's a business, you're making a lot of money. May, I don't know. I guess whatever, maybe it's a means to an end, but personally I, I like to be, you know, I, I, my, my bedside manner I think is very good, but what I like to show on social media is almost what I would, what I wish I could say during an appointment, but I know I can't. And because I'm not saying it directly, my patients actually see these posts and they go, man, that, that, that was mean. But like, I'm actually glad you said that. Cause it, 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 it was not me saying it directly to them, but it was like, about someone similar to them and they know that I wasn't necessarily talking directly to them, but they learned from it. So anyway, that's my approach. There's some people that are only positive. And again, I just, there's like, nobody's ever, nobody's always that happy. I always Uh be always negative because that's kind of a storm cloud following you around. But uh, anyway, that's, that's my thing. And I, I personally don't, call out people directly and be like, this person's an idiot. I, I take their topic and break it down. Like, Hey, someone, there are doctors that say vegetables are bad for you uh, because of this, this, and this. Well, that's ridiculous. Yikes. And then, uh, yeah. And someone will say, is, are you talking about so-and-so? And I'm like, mm, 
yeah, you could include them in this. Yeah. <laughs> the, the carnivore <laughs> dieters. Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. We'll, <laughs> we'll definitely get back to communication and memes likely yeah. later on in this conversation. Yeah. Um, but just to like, uh, start out because you are the preventive medicine podcast. We always like to ask our guests, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah. So preventive medicine would mean basically, uh, preventing any type of lifestyle related or not, it doesn't even have to be lifestyle necessarily related, but usually environmental lifestyle related, uh, disease. So, um, for example, if you look at like the social determinants of, of health, there are places that help people get air conditioners, air conditioners, because they find that they have fewer asthma exacerbations. These people, these these doctors get creative, like, hey, let's let's find a way to get them an air conditioner. And then all of a sudden they decrease uh, asthma exacerbations, hospital hospitalizations from a don't give them more inhalers. Let's stop, let's let's prevent what actually is triggering them from getting into the, the hospital. So for me, it would be like, let's start and find the root cause of whatever's causing these chronic issues and attack it right there. That would, that, that's kind of my definition. It's long winded, but kind of a quick follow-up question to that. I know when you were uh, kind of introducing yourself and how you got into like how you are, where you are right now, um, you mentioned that the system is broken. Yeah. Um, what, did, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> So here's something that's that's been frustrating me specifically in the past few months is that when you go uh, in the academic world, the ivory tower and, and those who are highest on the totem pole, they're the most specialized uh, physicians out there. And really, it's like I went into family medicine. Maybe maybe it was myopic of uh, and, and just kind of stupid and naive. But like, I feel like. Um, we should be we should be paying more and 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 putting more into primary care and, and preventive medicine, as as opposed to what we're really doing is we're we're paying the specialists who are really treating the end stage disease um, components. So like nothing against cardiologists, I you know my aunt's a cardiologist. I'm friends with good friends cardiologists, but like there was a time where they were just getting paid so much money to put stents in the people. And we're finding out that's not necessarily the best in all cases. And they're starting to come back to like, maybe we should do preventive cardiology. And I love that. But like, you don't like, unfortunately we don't even pay nobody's no insurance is paying for lifestyle uh, advice. And if they do, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's nothing. It's, it's hardly anything. And maybe that's because it's not super effective. And maybe that's because our system's broken because we only have 10, 15 minutes with a patient. So a lot of components are broken. Medical school is broken. Residency is broken. We don't emphasize enough on lifestyle as medicine in and really get applicants that are into that lifestyle mode. It's all about drugs and surgery. And those things are great. Again, I love, you know, I love drugs, but I, I, uh, I, pharmacology is awesome and, and we need it. But like if we can find a way to use from a systematic approach all the way from medical school to residency and then practice, to make sure people are incentivized to push lifestyle um, uh, and we get our environments improved. You know, if you're, if you're living in a, in an indigent area where it's maybe not safe to walk and do anything, it's, it's going to be hard to change that person's outcome. Whereas like, you know, I'm in here in San Diego and I take walks and near the beach in this very uh, wealthy area, La Jolla, 
everybody there can afford the most organic, wild caught, whatever food that we can afford. Like these people don't, these, they don't need the help. But um, anyway, so it's a broken system all around yeah. everywhere. I definitely agree. I think even going all the way to the pre-med stage. So like I kind of had a, a long course to medical school. I got my bachelor's degree in nutrition science right. and then minored in biology doing exercise science with the plan to get a PhD in exercise science. And then I ended up long story short, going to medical school instead. But that whole process taught me that like, I really think that instead of like organic chemistry, general chemistry, all these things that are like, they're important. They're, it's important to know, you know, certain things like that, but no anatomy is required for most pre-med, no physiology, no nutrition coursework. So I think even the baseline coursework for pre-med sets the, the stage for having a baseline of, of information or knowledge to hang on to for treating lifestyle or using preventive medicine. So Isn't I definitely agree. This system is crazy. It's weird. The MCAT, like, I mean, I remember some of the, a lot of the organic chemistry and it was just like, why? Like, look, I think it's important. So like when you look at like lipid molecules and, 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 satur and saturated fats versus poly, there's, there's organic chemistry involved there, but Man, I don't re like. I'll remember like doing the little organic chemistry, moving the electrons the around. And, yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> that is not anything, not even close. And then nope. that's why they're changing step one to the, to mm -hmm. fail now because like that's the stuff you don't prep. Like I think having a deep knowledge of certain things is is important. I think it helps with our ability to practice and understand why we do certain things. I do think it's important, but at the same time, I a lot of it is, um, it's not needed. The other thing is like, I don't even necessarily think a, f a full fourth year is necessarily needed in some cases. hundred percent agree. hundred percent. Uh, yep. Yep. What are we paying the medical schools for? I, I'll never forget. I went to VCOM, Virginia college of osteopathic medicine. Now Edward via college, they have a million colleges, whatever. But, um, uh, I remember my fourth year, I'm like, what am I paying you guys? 40 grand. I don't know how much I paid. It was a lot. And I'm like, I knew what I wanted to do. I could have gone, I could have gone straight to residency. I mean, pretty much quickly to residency. There was no, nothing. Anyway. I honestly think we're, we're less prepared by the end of fourth year because it becomes so much about applying and interviewing yeah. and getting ready. And then you Instead get to intern year and you yeah. haven't seen a patient for like three months and you're like, Oh exactly. yeah, how do I do an HMP again? So why not in, in, this is off topic, but why not in, in, uh, pre-med, why aren't we learning? We should get more of that physiology like you said in anatomy it's because it, like that stuff doesn't change like just start with that and then maybe just, i don't know it's 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 again archaic system makes no sense it, and, it, and then it's a long process we're paying tons of money to be and do this stuff when it's not actually needed we could have learned a lot of this stuff from youtube videos um anyway that's an aside it, it frustrates yeah me. Yeah. So going, going back on topic, um, you were mentioning a little bit more about like organic chemistry. We're not talking about organic chemistry, I swear. Yeah. Um, you're talking about like lipids and whatnot. And yeah. we know that your specialty is kind of in lipidology and yeah. obesity. Um, and to a lot of people that's kind of, they don't know what that means because they know cardiologist heart. Good. Yeah. Dermatologist skin. Good. What does it mean to be like an obesity specialist, a lipidologist? What do you do on a daily basis? Yeah. So it kind of comes back to like, I want to optimize, we call it like cardio metabolic. It's kind of a silly word, cardio metabolic lipidology, but really we're going to the root cause of what causes these long-term chronic diseases. So from 
from a standpoint of like, hey, you gain excess weight, especially around your abdomen, your visceral fat, the stuff that surrounds your organs, that's going to uh, worsen your insulin sensitivity and, and insulin resistance, which is going to cause inflammation. Your blood pressure starts going up all due to this and your lipids start changing. The, the lipids is an umbrella term. It means your cholesterol and your triglycerides that are circulating your blood. And all these things lead to basically heart disease, the number one killer in, in men and, and, and women. So um, uh, basically what I'm trying to do is make sure people are lean and mean as much as possible, getting them exercise, eating better, and then when needed, using pharmacology to then um, help them further if, if, if possible. So uh, lipidology, study of cholesterol and, and lipids and you know, cardiologists are generally thought of the people that do that, but endocrinologists also feel like they're, they're very good at doing that. Ideally, um, someone would be good at dealing with both diabetes and cardiology. And that's the whole idea of a cardiometabolic specialist, probably something they're, they're trying to make it, especially maybe the next 10 to 15 years off of internal medicine. But, um, that's that's the whole premise is, is really that they're, they're kind of, they're, they're similar diseases. You, Someone that has type 2 diabetes, huge risk for cardiovascular disease. And in cardiovascular disease, a lot of it's caused by this excess abdominal adiposity, inflammation, yeah. uh, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, like you said, I think one of the one of the things that is kind of backwards is the, the way the system is set up. And unless someone like yourself is passionate about primary care, yeah. we kind of end up where people who end up with the better board scores, whatever, they want to go into these, you know, the specialties, yeah. generally speaking. So and I think in general, the, the the best thing that can happen is that the smartest people should be going into family med and internal nice. med because you're handling the most you know, the most, the broadest scope of what you could possibly handle is family medicine. Yeah. So if we have more people who understand these diseases at a, at a better level, you know, then we don't, then we have better prevention. We have less things going out to specialists so they can focus on the real, like, you know, niche things that yeah, they need to worry about. Specialized stuff. So that's, I have to ask my buddies, uh, I have some friends in the, in the UK, but I believe that's how they set it up. And I think that they actually get paid more, I, I, I think. So it's, we're incentivizing correctly here. That was, so that was, I was, I was a little bit naive, but that was like, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to prove my point. Maybe it was stupid, but um, that was what I thought. I had very good board scores, very good grades. And I said, you know what, I'm going to be the best family doctor and prevent this stuff. And I'm going to do all this stuff. Quite frankly, I'm doing fine at my you know business stuff. I'm making a lot of money whatever, but um academically wise, you're lower on the totem pole from just being family. I was like, I could have done my board scores. I could have done whatever. I could have done anything. But, uh, and unfortunately, yeah, primary care. And you guys will see it. It's people that don't get into, maybe they want to do orthopedics or whatever. And all of a sudden, oh crap, I barely passed my boards. And now the only thing they can get into, unfortunately, is like family medicine. So they end up going in. So you get the bottom of the barrel folks and then you get some bright ones, but um, I know a lot of brilliant family medicine doctors. But unfortunately, they're not heralded like uh, the specialists. I don't know. Mm -hmm. 
And that's kind of one of the reasons that we started this podcast, because a lot of the times we, we're not going to be incentivizing preventive medicine, at least for the foreseeable future, yeah. in my eyes, at least. So I think a lot of it has to come from maybe outside efforts from people like you who are doing things outside, not necessarily outside medicine, but outside what the outside traditional of definition of medicine. Yeah. Exactly. So that's kind of why we started this podcast, to bring people like you and other experts to kind of put that message of preventive medicine out there and hopefully put a highlight on it and maybe make it more prevalent. And so people start talking about it and go from there. So yeah, that's cool. I appreciate it. It's awesome. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at PreventPod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show. So with yeah, you had mentioned earlier social determinants of health, obesity is a, a fairly nuanced topic. Uh, unless you ask some of our, some of the experts on Twitter and social media, in which case maybe they can break it down to it's all carbohydrates or it's only fast food. What in your mind are the biggest determinants of, uh, obesity or avoiding obesity to begin with? Yeah. So, uh, George Bray, he's one of these big time obesity researchers, um, that's been around for a while, but, uh, uh, genetics slowed the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So, you know, we, have different genetic propensities for multiple different things, cardiovascular disease and whatever, and obesity. And someone, you know, our genetics didn't change in the past 30 years when we see this huge spike in obesity. So our environments change and we have lots of foods that are easily overeaten. We're surrounded by them and they're yummy. So, uh, so that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the gist of it. We have these highly uh, palatable, super tasty, easily overeaten foods and we're surrounded by them and we have technology that causes us not to necessarily move as much. You know, there's some controversy of whether it's the movement, but we're overeating uh, and it's from these types of foods and that's pretty well established. I mean, there's still, people still argue. You'll still see the carbohydrate people. It's the insulin, but that doesn't necessarily make sense when you look at some of these populations who eat kind of higher carbohydrate and who are lean, but uh, it always comes down to the calories cookies taste better cookies and french fries taste better than broccoli and uh lentils so um that's like unfortunately you know we live in a world where we can't even agree that calories in versus calories out obviously there's a lot that goes on in between those two things but we can't even agree that that is the primary i mean the most the the experts can agree that that's important but there's so many people out there that pushing other ideas that uh, calories in calories out isn't it doesn't make sense or it doesn't work it's like you you can't deny physics it's physics right so i always say this like you can't just make fat tissue out of thin air it's not something in the air that we just breathe in and create it you need substrate to create it in order to break it down you need to not get as much substrate that's it and and actually it's interesting organic chemistry and or chemistry class uh you know people was like where does the fat go we actually breathe it out i don't know if you guys like combustion um equation but CO2 in the water, uh, we end up a little bit of energy, ATP, and then we breathe out the CO2 in water uh, and there's some other excretion, but um, yeah, kind of an interesting thing. That's that we don't need to know the whole, memorize a Krebs cycle. It's so stupid. (laughs) 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 Got to answer questions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so also when it comes to discussions of obesity and social determinants of health, you always throw in the conversation of cholesterol yeah. and cholesterol has one of been kind of a, one of the most polarizing things, um, recently yeah. where in the past we kind of knew, uh, quote unquote, that there was good cholesterol and bad cholesterol and that we should try to prioritize a good cholesterol, obviously not have as much of bad cholesterol. However, recently that discussion has kind of shifted. I don't know if it's shifted for the general population or if just what we're seeing on Twitter and social media and whatnot, but it seems that cholesterol is the subject of discussion. People are saying bad cholesterol is actually not bad. We should be prioritizing cholesterol. So what is the Jimmy on cholesterol? What does the evidence say right now? What should people be focusing on? Yeah. So, uh, just a quick, you know, physiology or whatever lesson, cholesterol needs to be carried by lipoproteins in our blood. It'd be like pouring oil into water and, um, the, uh, these are hydrophobic molecules. So you, you put, um, uh, a little protein wrapped around it and now it can be transported fine through, through the blood. So when people say good and bad cholesterol, what they really mean are the lipoproteins carrying those cholesterol because the cholesterol molecule, cholesterol is cholesterol. And uh, it actually goes from HDL and then it can be in, incorporated into the LDL. And it's the same cholesterol molecule that was on each. So it's really the lipoprotein. So when somebody says good cholesterol, what they mean is the high density lipoprotein. And uh, when they say uh, bad cholesterol, what they mean is uh, low density lipoprotein. And there's some other types of similar proteins that um, are like the low density. And these all carry this protein, uh, lipoprotein, uh, apolipoprotein lipoprotein B. So B isn't bad. And those are the, 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 the particles that, that get into our little vessels, into our vessels, like our arteries. And those are what starts atherosclerosis. So Throughout the years uh, and through history, we, they can kind of look at epidemiology, meaning like the Framingham. I'm sure you guys are familiar with Framingham a little bit, but uh, they looked at the cardiovascular risk factors and it looks like, hey, blood pressure, age, smoking, and it looks like this cholesterol thing is, uh, is also a risk factor. And then they found some other animal uh, mechanisms to say, yeah, cholesterol looks like it might be an issue. And then we've gone through the years, we've kind of narrowed it down to this low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, specifically these, these ApoB levels. And, and then what they did is uh, they've tested it out using certain drugs that lower it and see if that was beneficial. So they started off doing it with like niacin and clofibrate, this coronary drug project. And eventually we got to these, these things called statins that basically stop the production of cholesterol in our liver. And what that does, it's not that that's important. It's that when we do that, the these LDL receptors on our liver increase, which means we lower the amount of uh, LDL in our bloodstream. That's the most important part. It's because it increases the recycling. And what it found is, whoa, those those decrease heart attacks and, and uh, cardiovascular events. So then we have multiple drugs now that have been developed, and then we've even gone as far as doing something called a Mendelian randomization, where we look at uh, these different genetic components that either increase or decrease these ApoB-containing lipoproteins or low-density uh, lipoprotein uh, cholesterol. And what is found is that through these studies, it looks like those with higher LDL cholesterol levels have higher incidence of, of heart attacks and cardiovascular disease, and those with lower seem to have lower levels. And then when we use the drugs, 
it seems that those all, even though they have slightly different mechanisms, as they lower cholesterol, people have lower events. So it's thought that LDL cholesterol is by itself an independent risk factor and that if you have very low levels throughout life, you're probably not going to have a heart attack. But what these people are, are, are um, claiming is that, no, it's the inflammation, it's the sugar, it's the, it's the, you know, the insulin resistance. It's really, they're both. These are both risk factors. The thing is, the, lipidolo the pure lipidologist will say, if you don't have that LDL particle floating, that does not get stuck into your artery wall, there will be no atherosclerosis, regardless, regardless if there's inflammation around there. If you don't have the particle to get stuck in there, it doesn't start. The thing is, you can have lots of particles. Some people have lots of particles and seem not to get atherosclerosis either. So there's also, there's, there's multiple components of, of atherosclerosis. And really, you know, when you dial it down, yes, LDL, cholesterol, ApoB containing lipoproteins are an independent risk factor. But insulin resistance, inflammation, those things are also risk factors uh, as well. And so we shouldn't just go, oh, attack the LDL and forget about the rest. We should look at the person. That's why I do cardiometabolic medicine as opposed to just lipid medicine or just obesity. It's all of it encompassing. So um, kind of a straw man when people say, no, it's just this and that. It's, it's everything. Right, so, so, so speaking of that, so you mentioned the metabolic side of it. So metabolic syndrome, obesity, obviously in combination with atherosclerosis and, you know, high cholesterol, that, that combination is really the, the killer. So one of your focuses seems to have been over the last at least little bit um, focusing on weight loss for people or sustainable diets for people who need to be eating healthier. Yeah. So when you see a, per, a person for the first time who may be obese or have certain metabolic issues, um, uh, how do you lead them to a point where they're on something sustainable? If they've been on up and down diets and things like that, how do you lead them the right way? How do you go about that? Yeah. So this is where, you know, when you start working with patients, um, you know, we, you could probably put them in a calculator and go, all right, based on all this, this is going to be the perfect diet. But you kind of, first, when you, someone comes in and if they're coming to you for just a physical, it's different than if they're coming to you specifically for weight loss, because they're coming to you for a physical and your labs look off you know, they, they're 300 pounds or whatever, 250 pounds. You got to kind of ask the question, Hey, um, as opposed to like, you know, you're fat and you need to lose weight. That never works. And in fact, they'll never come back to the doctor. And I hear these stories all the time. So instead you, you go, Hey, um, has anybody ever discussed with you nutrition and exercise and lifestyle changes to maybe improve some of these health markers and maybe even, uh, lose some weight or, has anybody discussed it? And they go, yeah, you know, I've tried lots of things or no, I haven't. And then you have a way in. If they say, yeah, I've tried, tried lots of things. And you say, well, if you're interested, I, I may be able to help you there, but uh, I'm not going to push. Same as if somebody came in, they're smoker. I've seen so many doctors go, you know, it's bad for you. No shit. Everybody knows it's bad for you. <laughs> like, but the patients are just like, like <laughs> you're, you're not being helpful. Um, so in general, it's kind of this like approach where you go, hey, you, you don't push too hard. And, and a lot of times they respond very well. It, and it may be different for each person, but in general, that's how I do it. And then if they go, just tell me what to do, that usually doesn't work. It's usually, I've done that so many times now. Um, but you can, you always start somewhere like start with, I do meal templates or diet templates, but some people may really like the calorie calculators and, and my fitness pals and whatever. Some people may want that coaching approach where they 
you know, they send something to you weekly and you tell them good job and they send you your weight and you monitor their weight and go down. So it really depends on the person. Uh, in general, we just, I tell them, we, we're, we're basically trying to find a way for you to eat fewer calories and sustain it. And in general, it's going to include more vegetables, probably leaner uh, meats, fewer fast foods, uh, and, and more home cooked meals in general. And then you kind of modify it as they go. You maybe have to show them portions, but, um, there's no perfect way to have people sustain one thing or another. A lot of times you have to look for what their why, like, why are they doing it now versus before? Um, what have they tried before? A lot of people have done keto, low carb diets, cabbage soup diets, whatever. And something might've worked a little bit in the past and maybe a life event happened. Wasn't the perfect time to lose weight. Someone died in the family. Uh, they got married, got a new job, had to move, got divorced, whatever. So um, sometimes you go back to what they did before and just something derailed them. But um, it's different for everybody. Obviously, someone coming to you, it seems like they're going to be in very good hands. And for when it comes to something like a weight loss, um, I feel like you're going to need a little bit more hand holding, quote unquote, like you need continuous follow up yeah. and to like continue to encourage these patients. And what's problematic uh, that we've seen is that we've also touched on this previous in this episode is that there are people who claim that they're experts who actually are not experts. And one of the unfortunate uh, casualties of this is the credibility of physicians in their ability to give nutritional advice. Yeah. Um, a lot of times we see, I've seen it so many times where sometimes there's physicians on like Instagram or Twitter who know what they're talking about and they give a great response. And then someone else in the comments is like, no, actually she do this. I am ex qualified. Uh, physicians are not trained in nutrition at all. They actually just like don't get anything. And, and then, yeah, Lane, so, Lane, uh, Lane Norton shows up at their doorstep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this happens to me all the time. I'm just like, oh, you. you I think I saw it on your story the other day. You done messed up now. Yeah. They're, yeah. They, they, they're like, someone asked about what do you think about 800 calorie diets? I'm like, well, I don't personally prescribe them that often, but they may be useful in this uh, setting. Uh, anyway, and then the person goes, Oh my God, I can't believe you're a doctor. I'm a dietitian. No one ever should listen to doctors. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting because I guess you must've missed this study and this. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, and they looked really stupid, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you kind of tell who you should be listening to for nutritional advice and who you shouldn't be? Yeah, how how, how like, should our listeners use a bullshit test to figure out who they should get their ex advice yeah, from? Exactly. Exactly. Basically, if it sounds too good to be true, if they make it seem like this is, this is not known by too many people, if this is like a new secret, that's, that's generally it. So like usually the books that are written that people love are that, Hey, the experts have it wrong, but I figured it out. I never studied. <laughs> that's literally, and that's how they all go. Like, hey, hey, guess you having trouble losing weight? It's because you haven't done this yet. And that's, that's how they also like, for example, there's some books out there on intermittent fasting or whatever written by doctors. And there are a lot of people that follow this and have great results. And it's because like intermittent fasting helps you eat fewer calories. It's not that yeah. difficult to figure that out. And not, not rocket science. Yeah. So if you're eating all day, every day, and all of a sudden you don't eat a couple days of the week, it's really hard to make up for those calories on those days that you're not fasting. Or if you take your window of eating from, you know, 8 a.m. in the morning all the way to 8 p.m. at night, and all of a sudden you're eating from 12 p.m. or yeah, 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. 
it's it's harder to eat all those extra calories and those extra time into that smaller window. There are some uh, appetite hormonal benefits that you may see, uh, which means that you may sustain that uh, better, but it's, it's a restriction of some sort. Um, but you'll see that those books that they write, and these all, there's tons of them, keto, whatever. Nope, it's all your hormones. It's not calories. And these people, someone, someone came on my wall, and that's why I made this other post the other day. Nope, uh, I eat 3,000. I tried 1,200 calories. It didn't work. Now I eat 3,000 calories, and I'm losing weight like crazy. And I'm just like, <laughs> that didn't work. That didn't yeah. work. And I, like, yeah. it, it's, uh, and, and, so, and so you try to be nice to them, and then I finally make a post about it because I'm like, this is ridiculous. That didn't happen. Yeah. That's where the memes come from. Yeah, it really does. They come from my followers and my patients. My followers, like, and not, those people don't even follow me. They come on because it shows up in their feed somewhere. I don't know where yeah. it shows up. Yeah, the calorie deficit memes are some of my favorite. Like, oh, I swear I'm in a calorie deficit. I'm just not losing weight. I'm like, ah, yeah, maybe you're not really in a deficit yeah. then. So that, yeah. so that, so when, when it's hard to know, but basically when somebody says, I have information that nobody else knows, it's not published anywhere, and, or they may show you some publications, but PubMed is public. You, you can, everybody can get on, on it. So it's not like they will, there's nobody that writes a book that will ever have something new anywhere. Every, like the, I go to the biggest obesity conferences every year and follow uh, all the biggest researchers. All the research that's been done is congregated in one place. The, when somebody comes in and says they have something new, they don't, they never do. They're trying to make money and it may work, but it works all through a calorie deficit of some sort. Um, and that's the bottom line. I just, you know, the method may work for you, but like, it's not due to some magic that they claim in, in, in their uh, method. Yeah, so it's, it's less about, I mean, once you have the basic principles, there yeah. are many routes you could go to get to yeah. a caloric deficit. So if, if people yeah. like to track their calories, great. If they like, you know, if they like to do the intermittent fasting or some window eating where they, you know, their calories are restricted to certain times of the day, just any of the above that there's, they can sustain for a long period of time, because that's one of the things I know you talk about a lot too, is if you can't sustain it, then it's not a successful yeah. diet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, ketogenic diets, I, 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 some of my patients have done really well. Some of them have done it, lost a lot of weight and then they just hate it. And it's it, the, the diet does work. It's just like some people hate it. You, some people don't yeah. want to eat just meat and vegetables for the rest of their life or just meat yeah. for the rest of their lives or whatever. Yeah. One of my favorite things to to tell people is like, think about the holidays, think about birthdays, think about situations where you can no longer adhere to that diet. What is that going to do in the long run? Like, can you get through the, the holiday season with keto? Can you do it? Yeah. Like if they can, great. But most yeah. people, most of us are not going to get through the holidays on a keto diet. Yeah. And so, yeah, the thing is some, some people can, the people that really buy in and this is great for them. I, I think, you know, they're like, finally I've overcome everything and I, uh, like when they feel like they have like food addictions or whatever. I mean, that's a whole nother topic, but they, they finally feel like this is it and they're just going to stick with it. That's great. But uh, for most people, that's probably not, um, probably not reasonable. So one question we wanted to ask you specifically with preventive medicine is we found that the term preventive medicine invites a lot of pseudoscientific beliefs thrown yeah. in there with, you know, natural paths and yeah. so, you know, just people who take advantage of the term preventive medicine because it medicine is in the term, but they're really not doing medicine at all. They're just 
making up bullshit and selling it. So how yeah. do we both er- eradicate those folks if, if, or, or out, I guess, outperform them in the social media space? How do we sift out what is good information with preventable medicine from what is bad? Yeah. So, uh, some famous quotes, it's like, you know, when people say alternative medicine, whatever, it should be medicine. It should always be evidence-based. So like, you know, some people are, people are arguing all the time, like, what does the evidence-based mean? There's people, the, the keto and carnivore people are like, our, our evidence is our, our case studies and anecdotes. And that's fine. I think you got to start somewhere, but like, really we should be able to collect all the data systematically put it together and know, Hey, probably this and probably not that. So when people come up again with new concepts of, of something that seems to be secretive, only that a natural path would know it's probably bullshit, you know? So like, um, the one thing that I've found is that the reason I joined RP and they came to me a, a few years back is finding a way to make science based, uh, nutrition, and lifestyle sexier. So it's like the scientific principles of lifestyle are pretty set in stone. And the more we kind of apply those, the better they do. So we have tons of transformation photos and that's kind of how it's a marketing thing. So these, these people, like when they do keto or intermittent fasting, they try to make it seem something different and they market it a certain way. And then, and they're just really good at it. Whereas doctors are not as great at marketing we're like, no, just like follow the science and it's not sexy enough for people. So finding ways to make science sexier is really, I think is, is how I've found like Lane does it too, is finding ways to make it more digestible and fun and sexy, but it's not when you really boil it down, it's just very simple. Yeah. One, one of the other things that goes in with those uh, groups that have the pseudoscientific approach to quote unquote preventive medicine um, is also kind of like the natural approach to medicine yeah. um, where they have the anti-pharmacotherapy approach. Yeah. But like medicines are bad. If we can treat everything using natural therapies from the earth, the earth mm-hmm. provides, just use this like tree bark to do this, yeah. use this like plant to do this and whatnot. So kind of the question from that is, is there a role for pharmacotherapy in preventive medicine? Yeah. So, uh, so for example, these sodium glucose, uh, transporter, uh, inhibitors, um, are now being shown not just for diabetes, but maybe for heart failure and preventing pretty strong weight loss component and weight loss. So yeah. So from a preventive medicine, you know, we, we could also get into primordial. We want to like prevent even people from getting risk factors in the first place. So yeah, I, I think when ideally we would prevent people from getting risk factors. Unfortunately, due to genetics and whatever, some people are going to get them regardless. Um, some people develop hypertension, so an antihypertensive drug uh, would, would I would think would be preventive medicine because we want primary prevention. We want to prevent that first event. Now that they have the risk factor, we want to prevent that first event. They've done everything lifestyle wise. We better do something that actually helps them stop from going to the hospital and then having to get a stent by a cardiologist, uh, uh, um, you know, to have a heart attack or whatever. So uh, I do think they're cool. So I shared, like, you had a great post yesterday and a friend of mine, uh, I shared it too. (laughs) Yeah. Like, so, you know, a great friend of mine, he's training for a marathon. He's good body weight. 
weight trains three or four days a week, does cardio. You know, he meets the, he exceeds the exercise guidelines. He's a healthy body weight and he has hypertension. He has to take meds for it. Yeah. You know, and there are people out there who are shaming people for taking medicine yeah. when the medicine, for whatever reason, genetics, whatever, yeah. they can follow all these nutritional guidelines and be incredibly healthy and still have some sort of health issue that needs pharmacology to, to truly address it. So I really like that approach of like, yeah, we try to avoid medicines when possible, but there are definitely scenarios where medicines are not only, you know, helpful, but they're needed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's some holistic coach showed up. I, I, I ended up having to block the guy, but uh, I have a, I have a sometimes on social media, I like play it out. I'm like, let's see where this goes. And sometimes I just block really I let him go a little bit and then he just started getting inflammatory, but he is holistic Luke or whatever his name was. And he comes on and he's like, no, uh, we really shouldn't be using medicines. You should just use meditation or whatever. I'm just like, get out of here. Yeah. And then his whole population will be having strokes and heart attacks and meditation's great. What else? Yeah. with meditation, de-stressing. Yes. There's probably an effect on blood pressure, <laughs> but like, man, uh, you're not going to meditate your way out of, out of certain things, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, shaming people is definitely not the way to go for that. Um, and one of the ways that I realized this was, um, in the past I've been kind of addressing my own like past belief. I was like kind of more on the anti-medicine side, obviously when you need it, you need it. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that helped me realize that was just how much you can actually prevent using some medications when they're necessary. And my own personal need for like Synthroid, um, is just, preventing a lot of things obviously down the road for if you have hypothyroid you need medication like if you if you don't get the hormone then you're going to set yourself up for a lot of things to come in the future so you're going to be in a mix of edema coming you're not even going to be able to uh study for your boards or whatever yeah exactly so exactly i have Hashimoto's as well i got diagnosed in medical school uh, so i i've been taking it for whatever 10 11 years, I guess it's been, but, uh, I also have idiopathic hypercalciuria that was diagnosed a year ago. So I have to take thalidone. The side effect of thiazide diuretics is, uh, decreasing, uh, uh, diuresis or, uh, calciuria. So, um, uh, it, yeah. So it's like, I didn't, it's genetic or something. I don't know, whatever. Exactly. I have no choice. Yeah. And I think one of the messages that goes with that, um, is that you kind of have to learn how to communicate that. And we already touched on communication a little bit earlier on. And for some reason, it's not addressed in the healthcare field of how to communicate like alongside all those classes that we're talking about that we have to take like organic chemistry and whatnot and all of our preclinical classes. Why don't we have to take a class in communication? Physicians are like terrible at communicating is what I found. And I think that it's like what we discussed using memes to discuss uh, like serious topics is actually very valuable. People don't really realize that. Yeah. So it, it's, it's all incentivized wrong. That's why like the, the specialists get paid the most, right? So you get paid the most for doing procedures and whatever. So that means you have to study at a certain level. So the people that they don't learn how to communicate, they learn how to freaking memorize certain facts and they get paid the most. So you, it, it's all pointing in that direction. I think there's going to be a change here to where hopefully we get better communicators, more critical thinkers. Um, uh, and I don't know how to even figure that out when you're a, 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 a medical school, um, looking at medical school applications or residency applications and see who's the best candidate. But hopefully there's going to be a shift there and hopefully they should teach it 
you know, some sort of, some sort of way in your curriculum for how to learn how to do that. Yeah. I think our conversation with Dr. White, um, he's a CMO of WebMD and he talks a lot about communication because he finds that it's much easier to communicate things in like smaller bite sizes, like piece of information versus trying to communicate like volumes of information where let's say as a personal example, I've been super interested in communicating lifestyle interventions, but the way that I've been going about it through like longer form articles obviously hasn't made an effect. Whereas like something like a meme is Mm -hmm. very short sweet gets the point across and you get a laugh out of it too. So it's yeah. great. TikTok meme. I don't do too much TikTok. I should, but it's like eventually you get sick of trying to do too much social media, but uh, yeah, do that. Or maybe our attention spans are just getting less and less. So uh, it doesn't fit that too. <laughs> so what do you think if you're seeing someone for the first time and they ask you what, what's the, if I'm doing, if I'm going to make one nutritional change today, what is it? Like what's the, if you have to give one overarching, overly reductionist, generalized advice to people on one nutritional topic, what yeah. should they do? Uh, it's usually probably take out, replace, I don't say add, I, I wish I could say just add non-starchy vegetables to your meal, but it's usually take out half of whatever you're eating and replace it with non-starchy vegetables. So like if you have a whole plate of spaghetti and whatever, cut it in half add a bunch of whatever non-starchy vegetables that you like. Not necessarily the most palatable in the beginning, but you get used to it. And that would reduce, it would keep you full while reducing your energy intake by a lot. That would be, that would be the most reductionist, but probably most bang for the buck uh, thing you could do. Yeah. We've heard a a similar, uh, a similar answer to that question earlier from uh, Dr. Baraki. He was like, eat more vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. That's about about it. The the reason I say is because eating just, Adding them in may not have a benefit, whereas if you replace food, anyway, yeah, it's like, and I've had these debates before. We're like, well, just adding it won't help. I'm like, okay, replace it. Replace half your meal with non-starchy vegetables. So you have a full meal, but half of it's now non-starchy vegetables. It's always funny to me. We ask this question to most of our guests of like, what is like the one piece of advice you would give? And a lot of them have very, most of them, um, actually all of them have very simple answers. Like yeah. just cut out half your food, replace it with vegetables. It's yeah. like very simple, right? But it's so difficult to implement for whatever yeah. reason. And yeah. that's why I think you're doing a fantastic job with the memes. I just want to yeah. keep coming back to that because Thanks. it's not necessarily about the intervention at this point. It's more about the communication, like getting that across to the patients. The, the, the behavioral change model, the human side of it. <laughs> Because when yeah. people think about it, like people know they shouldn't be going to Chick-fil-A, eating their waffle fries, eating a couple fried chicken sandwiches. Oh, it's so good though. I know nobody ever thinks yeah. this is a healthy meal. I know <laughs> they know that they have some semblance, you know, there's some, you know, there's some gravy in there, some gray zone, but like. They know that that's the, the the pizza and the the hamburgers and French fries aren't aren't good for you. I, I I don't think anybody would say those are good. They know that, but yet, despite knowing that, it's hard to to change it. Yeah, I don't know if you've been keeping track of the time, by the way, but we're at about an hour in. Um, we so with respect sure to your time. your time, yeah, yeah, yeah. With respect to your time and our, uh, I'm in the hospital right now. I probably gotta get back to doing yeah, something soon. We're good. We're we're good to go. We're yeah. Good. Do you do you have anything um, you want to like plug or add or put your social? We're ha- we'll have your social media everywhere. Yeah. But is there something you want to say? Yeah, Renaissance Periodization uh, is where you can get our diets and coaching and 
Uh, we have apps, templates, coaching, and exercise plans. I would say that was all. That's all I really want to plug. And then call me on social media at drnadolsky at Dr. Nadolsky on Instagram. And I have Facebook. And if you're listening, if you're listening to this in the car or something, then if whenever you get done, it'll be in the show notes. Just you can find them there easily. Awesome. All right. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate your time today. Um, thank you for coming on the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Two future docs who lift, one doc who lifts. We're out. Thank you, guys. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-B-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.